you are listening to the Life Church podcast. To learn more about Life Church, including our gathering times at Fishers, Eagle Creek, Noblesville, Pendleton, or our Life Crew online, visit us at lifechurchin.com or follow the link in the description. Today's talk is from Pastor Ross Steele. For those who don't know, for a lot of you do, there are some first-time guests or people I haven't had an opportunity to take out to a meal yet, but uh, I am engaged. In 13 days, I get married, and it is, yeah, we can praise the Lord for that. I praise the Lord every day for my fiance because she's way out of my league, and uh, I'm grateful. But uh, when Kelsey and I started dating, I had already known, I knew very early on, like, this is my wife. The Lord told me, this is your wife, and you're going to treat her as such, even though she's not, like, a fit, like, even though in, in worldly terms, like, she's not your wife, you're going to treat her as such, and you're going to honor her as such, and you're going to court her, you're going to date her as, like, she is your wife. Like, it was very clear to me, and I knew that, and he... He, he, he told me that, and, and I didn't really tell anybody yet. And then, and then actually, I, the first person I told was actually my grandma. And she passed back in uh, August. I, be, I don't know. Was it August? Mom, is you in the room? Is mom in here yet? No. Hey, when did grandma pass away? August 14th. August 14th. Okay, so August was when she passed. And it was probably in March, uh, right after Kelsey and I had actually officially dated, started dating, and I said, I said, Grandma, because uh, she had cancer, like we knew she was sick, so I was just kind of sharing with her. And um, I said, Grandma, I'm going to ask Kelsey to marry me one day, and I don't know when it is, but she is my wife. And, and she, <laughs> she cracks me up. She said, oh, the Lord finally told you? And I was like, oh, so you knew this whole time? And she's like, yeah, he told me the first time I laid eyes on her. She walked in the house, and I just knew. She's like, that's Ross's wife. And I was like, wow, okay, thank you for telling me. Uh, but it was about time that I, she, she knew I had to hear it for myself. And then in that same sense, that gave me the idea that I also knew that Kelsey had to hear it for herself. It couldn't be something that although I would, you know, I wanted to marry her right off the bat. And I was like, Kelsey, I want to get married like yesterday. Like, let's go. Uh, it was, it was, I had to wait that time. And, and it's in God's, and, it, and it's, in, it's in God's way on God's day, which is the title of my message today. And we're going to get into, uh, into what this really means, but it, it goes to show that I, can't, I couldn't go around just saying the God said card and expected it all to, to, to work out perfectly and, and just be done right away, this, that, or the other. I had to wait for the promise of God to be fulfilled, which oftentimes in our lives is really hard. I mean, I'm sure we've all been there one time or another. We hear a promise of God and we're just waiting and waiting. And it's really hard for us to wait in that season. But in that season is there's so much harvest in that season. There's so much preparation that, that, that goes into that season that is necessary for that promise that he has called for you. We're going to start in verse 1, and I'll have it on the screen here. We're, going to just, we're just going to read all, all 12 verses, and, uh, and we're going to get into the message. Verse 1, Now when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage, and all Israel was disturbed. Saul's son had two men who were commanders of bands. The name of one was uh, Banna, and the name of the other, Rechab. Sons of Ramon, the Berothite, of the sons of Benjamin, for, Bero, 
for Beeroth is also considered part of Benjamin, and the Beerothites fled to Gideon and have been aliens there until this day. Now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. So the sons of Ramon, the Berethite, and Rechab, the, and, and Banna departed and came to the house of Ishbosheth in the heat of the day while he was taking his midday rest. They came to the middle of the house as if to get wheat, and they struck him in the belly. And Rechab and, and Banna, his, his brother, escaped. Now when they came into the house, as he was lying on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and killed him and beheaded him. And they took his head and traveled by uh, traveled by way of the Arabah all night. Then they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Behold the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. Thus the Lord has given my Lord the king vengeance this day on Saul and his descendants. David answered Rechab and Banna, his brother, sons of Ramon the Berethite, and said to them, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress? When one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when a wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood from your hand and destroy you from the earth? Then David commanded the young men, and they killed them, and cut off their hands and feet, and hung them up beside the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the grave of Abner in Hebron. This is a lot, okay? It's 12 verses, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it from, from the top shelf. I'm going to do my very best, at least, to take it from the top shelf and bring it down to the bottom shelf to, to make it make sense and see how does that apply in our lives today, in our world today. And if we think about this chapter in light of the whole book of Samuel, which is 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, then I think we could say the main purpose of this story is simply to describe how Ishbosheth was removed from being a rival to David and how David was completely innocent in the death of this rival. When Ishbosheth heard that the man who put and propped him up on the throne was dead, he knew that his day was coming to an end. He trusted and he trusted in man to gain his position. This was the first problem that he had. He trusted in man to gain his position. So when the man was gone, he knew his position would be soon or would soon be gone. And Ishbosheth was weak only because he trusted in man. He wasn't trusting in God. He wasn't putting his trust in God. He was putting his trust in earthly things, which are temporary. So when he was gone, then he realized, oh, now I'm really weak and, and, and I'm vulnerable. And this, you know, I, I'm about, my day is going to come. But I think that there are some basic concepts, some basic themes, some principles that are worth pointing out this morning. And part of why they're worth pointing out for me is the fact that these ideas speak directly to us concerning the subject of motives or intentions. We look back at the words of, of Rechab and, and uh, Banna in verse 8, where it says, 
Behold the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. Thus the Lord has given my Lord the king vengeance this day on Saul and his descendants. Clearly, it's very clear that these two men have presented themselves as having the best of intentions. They're saying that this is God's will. Thus the Lord has given. Thus the Lord has given. They think that they are walking out the will of God by, by going and, and committing murder and shedding blood, uh, shedding innocent blood at that. But think about what we're reminded of in this passage regarding the subject of these motives and these intentions. And what first comes, I'm going to have three points for you. And the first point that I have for you today is that God-centered talk is meant to mask me-centered motives. Notice that David's response to these men assumes that they have told him more about the details of their mission, but the writer records only what they say in verse 8. And very clearly in verse 8, they say that they want to present themselves. They try to present themselves as the Lord's instruments, as, as instruments of God's vengeance, as servants who are carrying out the will of God in God's way and on God's day. This is what they are trying to, 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 to give off. And Mephibosheth, he was the son of Jonathan, who the, Jonathan, we've already, we've already walked through, and, and he was killed with his dad, with his father, but Jonathan was, was David's best friend. And Mephibosheth, he's the last male descendant of Saul with a strong legal claim to the throne of Saul. Ishbosheth didn't gain any real loyalty among his troops. They were only loyal to him when they thought he was strong and had a chance at the throne of Saul. But when the weakness of Ishbosheth was exposed, they went and they murdered him. And beheading him and taking Ishbosheth's head was an important part of their plan because they wanted to prove to David that they murdered his rival to the throne. They wanted David to think, hey, I'm helping you. Now you have, you have there's no gap to the throne. Nobody, there's no rival for you. You can take the throne and nobody will say anything. But the writer also gives us plenty of clues that these men are ultimately motivated by impure motives, by selfish intentions. And what are those clues? The cowardice. Two times we are told that these warriors were brave enough to kill a sleeping man napping on his bed. He was brave enough as he's sleeping in the, in, in the middle of the day. Like, no, that's cowardice. The arrogance. These men presume to stand before the king and present themselves as God's vessels. They are very arrogant in this matter. They, they have taken, almost they've taken that throne for themselves. Like, no, I'm a, I'm a vessel of the Lord. This is what he wanted. This is what I'm doing. And this is what I'm proclaiming. But that is incorrect. The greed. Clearly, these men, upon hearing about the death of Abner, are trying to position themselves in such a way, in David's favor, by giving him what they think that he desires. They think that that's what David wants. But they are wrong, and we see that by, by his reaction in the text. There is no real honor. There is no real integrity. There is no genuine courage or even humility. And if we're honest with ourselves, this hits closer to home than any of us would, would like to admit. There was a commentator, Dale 
Ralph Davis, and he puts it like this. Uh, Manas and Rechabs still exist. Some are in our churches. Their methodology is unchanged. Use theology to cover sin and folly. For them, theology is not truth that leads them to worship God, but technique that enables us to justify ourselves. I mean, that's what these men did here in the text. And when we look at this commentator and what, what he says, basically what he's saying is like, there are still people who are guilty, who same, have the same spirit uh, about them, even in our churches. And we can be harsh and then use something about God's, about God's truth as a cover for our severity. We can be indifferent and then use something about God's holiness as a cover for our separation from a needy sinner. We can rationalize and use something about God's grace as a cover for our impurity. Whether we are telling this something to someone else or to ourselves, when we speak about God, about his word and his will, we desperately need to check our hearts. We have to be very mindful of what we are saying, who we're saying it to, and, and ultimately it's about ourselves because it's very easy for us to fall into selfish motives. The same sin nature that we've read that Saul has, has had this whole time is the same sin nature that's alive and well in this world. And, and it, it's even us at times as well. So we have to check our hearts when we are going to do and especially proclaiming this is God's will and this is what he wants. There's something else that we see in this chapter. A God-centered king will also serve as king, judging motives. David is presented to us as a man after God's own heart. A man chosen by God to be the, the next king precisely because of his faith and righteousness and integrity. Therefore, David will not tolerate these murdering opportunists. And as the king, he will judge them. And that's exactly what he does. But just as this was true, it also will be true. God's king is coming to judge. This is what the apostle Paul told his listeners in the city of Athens in Acts 17, 30 and 31. It says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. He's referencing the Son of Man, Jesus. He's referencing the Son of God here. And this, this brings us to the point that Jesus Christ, the, 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 son of David, the Son of David, is coming as both king and judge. In his letter to the Corinthian church, Paul also touches on the same theme. He writes this in 1 Corinthians 4, uh, verse 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will, both bring, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. In his second letter to the same church, Second letter, same church. Paul reminds them of this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Remember, 
In both of those passages, Paul is speaking to Christians. Our motives will be exposed by the King of Kings. So we need to check our motives. Because if we don't, there will be a day, and that day is coming, where we will be exposed by the King of Kings. Therefore, we cannot be satisfied with simply focusing on doing and saying the right things. We need to look at our hearts. We need to ask God to change our hearts through his spirit that we would do God's will out of desire to do God's will. Not out of, not out of, uh, of religion, but out of relationship. That we would glorify God because we are seeking his glory and not our own. But there's another aspect presented here related to this idea of judgment. And this brings me to my third point. A life dominated by me-centered motives will end in severe judgment. Severe judgments. And we see severe judgment in the text that we're covering today. David was used, David was used to seeing severed heads. He, he carried the head of Goliath around as a trophy for some, for some time, actually. But David knew that Saul and his descendants were not his enemies in the same way that Goliath was his enemy. Even though Ishbosheth was not, uh, was not the Lord's anointed in the same sense as Saul was, David had thoroughly learned to let God take vengeance. God is a just God, and he will have justice and we need to take our battles. We need to allow God to have his vengeance because the day will come. David would not accept their evil deed, even though it seemed to serve a good purpose, which was unifying Israel under David's reign as king. While it is true that God overrules all the doings of men and compels them ultimately to serve his high purpose, it is equally true that no servant of his can ever consent to do evil that good may come. It is an arresting truth that our Lord in the days of his earthly life would not accept the testimony of demons. David swiftly made an example of these murderous men. They were not soldiers just fighting together with him. They were murderers who deserved just punishment. David's judgment against these killers is just. David also makes a statement. These men are not only executed, but their hands and feet are cut off and their bodies are put on display by the, by the town watering hole so that everybody would see it. It wasn't something that was hidden. It was, it was very public. It was something that David realized, I need to do this because if I don't make an example out of this, then this will keep happening. The 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 the. the Shedding of innocent blood will keep happening. And Proverbs 6 actually describes the, the six things. Uh, it says in verse 16, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. And eight, verse 18, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil. This is what these men had done. And I believe David's judgment was not, was not meant to cast shame upon these men, but also upon their wicked acts. It wasn't just the men themselves, but also the actions. 
And I believe, personally, I believe in America that we have fallen away from this. We, we, we operate in grace, and, and grace is, is, is great. Grace is awesome. I mean, we all, we've all received grace uh, plentiful in our lives. And we want to extend grace as, as much and as often as we can. But I believe that we need to return to this. By this, in retrospect, is capital punishment. I know it sounds cruel. It sounds cruel for me to say. It sounds cruel for a pastor to say, to say that we need, to, we, need to, we need capital punishment. You say, but Ross, what, what about grace? Well, Grace can be there, but there comes a time when you have to start punishing wicked people for their wicked acts. And you have to make an example out of the wicked acts as well. Just sending people to prison isn't a punishment in itself anymore. For the grotesque things that go on in this world, from child abuse to sexual molestation to child trafficking to a number of things, the shedding of innocent blood in itself... It isn't until we return and, and actually operate into capital punishment for serious offenses, for serious offenders, when people realize that there will be justice, that there will be consequences for their wickedness. We, we have fallen into this idea of like, hey, let's, let's soften up a little bit. We, you know, we don't want to just kill everybody off. And I'm not saying kill everybody off, but what I'm saying is we've quit making examples out of people and their actions. And now we see a world that is corrupt, that is, that is just, it is terrible. It's wicked all around us. There's, there's wickedness all around us, guys. And, and I say this with a deep love for everybody in the world, but we have to have something in place that will prevent these things from happening. And no, I'm not saying that it's going to stop it entirely for all these wicked acts. But I would bet you that if we put on display, just like David did, if we put on display and we, we walk through and follow through with capital punishment, I would guarantee that these, this, these, these wicked offenses uh, that actually happen and these offenders, they'll be punished. But everybody in the world is going to start recognizing, oh, you don't want to do that. I mean, guys, you look at other countries that are in the world, they don't even think twice. They just start killing people, and it could be something small, and they're just like dead. And you see all these places that have, have very low crime rates, it's because their punishment is very severe. And we've become soft as a nation. And it's been done, I would say, guys, it's not just, it's not just the people, but it's also the leadership. Over the years, our leadership has, has grown soft. It's not just, I'm not going to say it's just the last two years or anything like that. I mean, it, it, it's gotten soft, it's gotten weak, but it, it's been over time where our leadership has been soft. And it has allowed wickedness to take place in our world without any punishment, without any consequence. As we talked about in the last chapter, David went to great lengths to separate himself from men like this and from the schemes that were supposedly done for his benefit. We read that in the last chapter. But in the same way, when Jesus, the son of David, returns to judge, there will be severe consequences for those whose lives are dominated by selfish ambitions. Now wait, 
You may say, wait a minute. Are you saying that God will judge Christians and punish them for their sins? Didn't Jesus die to take that punishment? Yes. Yes, Jesus died in our place. And for those who trust in him, we will not be punished for our sins. But let me clarify what I'm saying with two ideas. In the same context where we are told that Jesus will uh, disclose the purposes of the heart, we are told that there is the possibility that in that judgment, a person will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. We see that in, in, in 1 Corinthians 3.15. My second idea is that we also know that not everyone who confesses faith in Christ truly does have faith in Christ. This story of, of uh, Banna and, and Rechab clearly points us forward to the words of Jesus in Matthew 7. Matthew 7 says, there we go, 21, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, what I'm getting to here is that new life in Jesus should be dominated by the reality of Holy Spirit in our lives. We have to and we must recognize the, the ever-present Holy Spirit that is within us. If we are new, we are, we are made new in Christ, and Holy Spirit lives in us. And we can't just go about our days without, without really operating in the Spirit, without praying in the Spirit, without like all these things that come into it. Like we have, we have the greatest helper on our side. And there is much authority and there is much power in him. Now, is that, is that always the case? No. But the spirit is also evident in our struggle and our constant battle of repentance and reformation and our struggling to always follow Christ. But those who, who say one thing and yet live differently, those who are insensitive to God's spirit, who are content with me-centered motives, greed, pride, indifference, etc., etc. Such hypocrites will be exposed one day. No matter the length of their Christian resume, they will be exposed. And that goes for each of us in, in this room today. There is a very clear reminder in this passage, a, a sobering reminder that we have to be careful when we claim to act in God's name. We have to be careful that what we do in God's name is truly done according to God's will and for God's glory, not our own. But if we simply finished with that, we would be missing something wonderful from this passage. I wanna look back at, at verse nine and look at how David responds to these claims that these men have had. 
Listen to the very first words out of his mouth. In verse 9, it says, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress? He's saying, the Lord has redeemed his life from all distress. That is who, that is who has done this. Do you understand why David begins his response like this? Well, notice how he finishes his response. In verse 10, when one told me saying, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood from your hand and destroy you from the earth? You see, like the Amalekite from 2 Samuel chapter 1, these brothers showed up thinking that they had good news for David. But it was good news of men accomplishing their own will in their own way and on their own day. David, he knew better. He knew that what mattered was God accomplishing his own will. That doesn't mean God cannot and and does not use people to do this, but it is his own way and on his own day. David learned this lesson out in the desert on the run for all those years. He saw time and time and time again how it was God who redeemed his life out of every adversity. David didn't need a a Rechab or a a Banna to be his redeemer. He had a redeemer. And David's redeemer did not accomplish true redemption in the way these men were claiming. David could smell a freak from a mile away. You see, David understood that the, the genuine good news of God's redemption was God coming in his way on his day to deliver his servants. We've already seen how this passage has pointed to Jesus Christ as king and judge, but here we also need to be reminded that that Christ as God in human flesh is our redeemer as well. God has redeemed you today and he redeemed you yesterday. He redeemed you when you were born. He redeemed you before you were born. He was your redeemer all along. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us, share with a friend, and hit subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you stream your podcasts. Our mission is simple. Come to life, connect to grow, find your purpose, make a difference. Thanks for listening to the Life Church Podcast.